The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you have not done it for me. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to the word in black and red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by the wonderful Pastor Sarah and Noel. Now, I am so excited about having Noel on this episode because Noel is a uh, is a representative of the Islamic tradition, and I love her perspective on so many things. And we're going to have her on for a Islamic liberation theology episode as well. But before we get to that, uh, Noel, will you tell us a little bit about your political tendency, your religious background, and how we can connect with you? Yeah, totally. So my name is Noel. Pronouns are they, she. Politically, I've been all over the place in the last five years, but kind of settled on broadly Marxist. I'm a communist. My religious background, I was raised Catholic and converted to Islam when I was 18 and then have kind of been at the same time as educating myself and converting, also unlearning all of the homophobic, transphobic things that kind of come with Abrahamic, uh, Orthodox Abrahamic faiths. Because we have so much to talk about in this passage and the interfaith implications and the different ways that our traditions talk about this passage, I'm going to dive right on in. Genesis 21. The Lord was attentive to Sarah, just as God had said, and the Lord carried out just what God had promised her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham when he was old, at the very time God had told him. Abraham named his son, the one Sarah bore him, Isaac, that is, laughter. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, just as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God has given me laughter. Everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. She said, Who could have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse sons? But now I've given birth to a son when he was old. The boy grew and stopped nursing. On the day he stopped nursing, Abraham prepared a huge banquet. Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly, because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, Don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do, because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too, because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning, took some bread and a flask of water, and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. She left and wandered in the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask ran out, and she put the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. She walked away from him, about as far as a bow shot, and sat down, telling herself, I can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief, and wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messengers came, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cries over there. Get up. Pick up the boy and take him by the hand, because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went over, filled the water flask, and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert, and became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. 
At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything that you do. So give me your word under God that you won't cheat me, my children or my descendants. Just as I have treated you fairly, so you must treat me and the land in which you are an immigrant. Abraham said, I give you my word. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this, and you didn't tell me. I didn't even hear about it until today. Abraham took flocks and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them drew up a treaty. Abraham set aside by themselves seven female lambs from the flock. So Abimelech said to Abraham, What are these seven lambs you've set apart? Abraham said, These seven lambs that you take from me will attest that I dug this well. Therefore the name of that place is Beersheba, because there they gave each other their word. After they drew up a treaty at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he worshipped there in the name of the Lord El Olam. Abraham lived as an immigrant in the Philistines' land for a long time. So this passage is, dear listener, long-time listener, reminiscent of things that have happened before. Uh, The first couple of verses, the first seven verses, are new. It is Sarah giving birth to Isaac and introducing this laughter, this passage that was long predicted, this thing that finally happened. But then we see Hagar and Ishmael evicted for a second time. And here in this second description, it sounds as though at first maybe Ishmael is older, but then he's young enough that he still fits in a sling. So there's that strange age thing that's happening here. And then there's Abraham's treaty with the Philistines. It's again one of these typecasts, these things where Abraham has already had dealings with this king Abimelech, and this treaty is going to be relitigated by Isaac later on in his life. So we're going to focus less on those two stories and much more on the story of Hagar here and, and come back to those things. But uh, first off, I want to talk about Sarah and her role here in this story. Well, well, we've talked about this before, right? Sarah is a victim of abuse. She was in order because Abraham and Sarah were migrants. They were in danger. They made some choices that were really difficult. And one of the choices that they made in order to survive was that Abraham lied and said that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, because they were worried that he was worried that they, people would kill him to steal his wife. The other thing that happened is that Sarah has been ridiculed by other members of her family, of her culture, for not having children. And the idea that women are only valued for how many children they produce is problematic. And then, you know, she's had this experience of jealousy and she has her husband take this other person to bed without her consent. And then Sarah experiences jealousy. She is a victim of abuse, but then enacts abuse on Hagar. Well, and and this story is the reason that I get so upset about slogans like empowered women, empower women, right? Where that is not the case, right? (laughs) (laughs) We see... Empowered women can also abuse power. Yes, exactly. Because it isn't a category of ultimate solidarity, right? Um, Empowered women who are in solidarity with unempowered women... um, can empower women, right? But women who are perfectly willing to yank the ladder up after them are not going to empower women, right? And we see this again and again in our own culture, in a culture where the fragility of white women is often leading to the death of black men. The issue is she's still not empowered, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of us think of life as a zero-sum game, and there's sort of this one pie of, of delicious, great things that... You know, and if great things go to one person, then there's less for everybody else. And and she's been, right, they escaped famine. She's been hungry. She's been called barren and all of these things. And she finally gets something good. And she experiences somebody else threatening mm. to have something good too. Yeah. And she's like, no, all I have is this tiny sliver of pie. If you take any of the pie, I'm going to starve. Yeah. And so I have compassion for her. Also, it's horrible. Yeah. Right? Because everyone in the situation loses. Yeah. Including, I'd argue, Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is a sign, you know, again, a symbol of the fact that the patriarchy hurts all of us, right? The patriarchy even hurts those of us who, like me, present as a man in society because the patriarchy keeps me from 
living into my full identity as a non-binary yeah. person, right? It hurts Abraham by separating yeah. his family because if Sarah was actually empowered and knew that she was secure in her position in his life, then maybe she wouldn't have felt threatened by the existence of this other child. And and Hagar wouldn't have been sent away. And they were so desperate. Right? They didn't trust God. God said, you're going to have kids. Don't worry about it. Yeah. In the Islamic tradition, Sarah is actually not mentioned in the Quran. Mm. And I'm I'm not super familiar with if she's mentioned in the Hadith. Yeah, so, so tell us more about the Islamic tradition of this story. Uh, yeah, so if we're just talking about kind of Hagar's experience, it's a little bit different than the story in the Christian tradition being taken out into the desert and with very little supplies with a a young child is not a positive experience. Um, it's generally it's generally generally understood that it's not an exile, but that this was done to essentially like resettle Hagar and Ishmael into a better place and to lift up their descendants. So the story of Hagar is quite cyclical in that, and she actually herself is not mentioned in the Quran, but in the Hadith and in the, I believe it's the Kisas al-Anbiya, which is like a collection of the stories of the prophets. You know, she's like the daughter of a king who is then enslaved and then married to a prophet and then left in the desert and then the mother of a great nation that is destined to bring about the revelation that becomes Islam. It's really interesting. They're reframing that and of God's plan to resettle people in a, in a place where they had space to, to build a great nation. It, it is framed as kind of like another test, a period of suffering through which you are exalted or empowered or made the low is made high because when Ibrahim leaves her in the desert. She asks him multiple times, why are you doing this? And he does not answer. Mm. And then she reframes the question and says, did God ask you to do this? And he says, yes. And then her resolve is kind of strengthened. Yeah, I, I love the um, the verse in the Quran, uh, 1437, uh, that it, the say. The Sahih International translates as, Our Lord, I have settled some of my descendants in an uncultivated valley near your sacred house, our Lord, that they may establish prayer. And so it isn't just like the sending out. It is for a purpose that they're sent here. I'm sending them here to this barren place so that they can do something that is extremely important to offer this prayer, right? I, I wish that Christianity had as much of an emphasis on prayer as Islam did. <laughs> um, I'm a little biased as an Episcopalian, but, <laughs> but you know, the fact that they are set out to do this holy task, it's not a shunning away. It is that Hagar is taking on this thing that is really important and central to how Islam develops. Yeah, exactly. And I, the other kind of piece of it, of course, which you mentioned in the first episode about this story, is that we as Muslims are required to recreate the journey of Hagar. One of our pillars is the the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, um, which every abled body, every able bodied Muslim is required to make should can they afford it? And we retrace her footsteps. And some some people, I have I haven't been on Hajj or Umrah myself, but I do know some people. You know, they take home water from the well that the angel Gabriel created for her, and the act itself is kind of seen as a, not a worshiping of, but a lifting up of an exaltation of motherhood. Well, it's so interesting that um, that in the Islamic tradition, it is Gabriel who is the one who makes this well, right? Um, I don't know who who the messenger here is in the Jewish or Christian tradition that goes to Hagar, but it's so interesting that it's Gabriel, because Gabriel in the Jewish tradition was the person who was sent to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then, of course, Gabriel is the messenger who goes to Mary uh, to announce the birth of Jesus, right? And so it's interesting the different roles that Gabriel is playing here. And and Gabriel is also the one who speaks to the prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He he plays this kind of, like, the word messenger is is kind of reserved for prophets, but he almost plays that role as this kind of intermediary periodically 
between God and, and humanity. The the rabbis go out of their way to make the point that Sarah is spoken to God spoken with God directly, whereas Hagar is speaking just with God's angel in this story. But of course we remember from the last time that God doesn't speak directly to Sarah in the first version of this story, but instead speaks to Hagar directly and to, to Abraham um, and to Sarah only indirectly, according to uh, Rabbi Noyo on that episode. But it is interesting that like here, this messenger is, is or at least in Islam, that Gabriel is the messenger. That um, Now, is Hagar actually, I think we've discussed this as well, is Hagar actually considered a prophet in Islam? She's not among those explicitly listed. And of course, well, perhaps not of course, but my knowledge is that all of the prophets that are explicitly listed are men. But in Islam, it is also explicitly stated that there are countless unnamed prophets. So I kind of like to hold her up there. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll just pretend that she was a prophet anyway, even if we're wrong. Um <laughs> Uh, which is uh, time to jump in here and remind everyone that uh, Mary Magdalene, of course, uh, well, to remind everyone that what is a bishop? It's a pastor to pastors. And what is a pope? They're the, they're the bishop to bishops. And what did Mary Magdalene do? She preached first to the bishops, uh, the people who would go on to found the church, which makes Mary Magdalene the first pope. Um, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> so Micah, now that you're Episcopalian, is this important to you for patriarchy to uh, match no. the scripture? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just check in. No, not at all. I'm an Episcopalian who could not give, I, I give a lot of, I, I have a lot of love for my bishop. The hierarchy of, of Episcopalianism is not why I'm an Episcopalian. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. I'm giving you a hard time. The way my church is set up is congregational, so we do everything by committee, and the center of power is God, but then also yeah. the local congregation, not any clerical authority. Well, and I'm I'm a Baptist, a Baptist anarchist who God has called to the Episcopal Church, so there's lots of co- inner conflict. Um. <laughs> Transformation will happen one way or another, but I want to talk about, I, I love that God plays what has been traditionally associated with, with a female role, which is that God nourishes and raises this child in the wilderness. Right? God hears the cries of the boy and responds. And then God remains with the child, helps him learn how to be, you know, an archer is is there to comfort and raise the child, which I, I think is a really beautiful image of God as well. Absolutely. It goes back to this very old image of God as the warrior God, right? That Yah or Yahweh, which again, I'm using as the term to refer to the God before uh, they were combined with El and Asherah to become um, Adonai, the God whose name I don't pronounce because uh, that's that's a bad thing to do, um, according to our, our siblings of the faith. But that God, Yahweh, was a warrior god who had a bow and arrow, who put their bow in the sky to say that they were establishing peacefulness with the rest of the earth. And here, Ishmael is becoming an archer because God hung out with them, right? Because God trained this boy to be a good archer. I absolutely love that the power there remained with the boy, stayed there, and became like God in this very ancient kind of way. No, but Micah, he doesn't just become a warrior, he learns how to nurture. Mm-hmm. And as the father of this entire nation of people, I think it's really great that he has both, right? He, he has the example of a father who stays there and cares for him and provides for him food and water and like that comfort. Again, God hears his cry and goes to him. Uh, and, and that to me is, is a beautiful image of God and also of, of the relationship between God and us and, and the relationship between parent and child. And I think that's a beautiful origin story for a nation too. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is the this is the nation that was fathered by God, right? Like the Abraham was a shitty dad and didn't show up. And so instead, God showed up and filled that role and stepped into that capacity. And and Noel, could you tell us more about how that plays into an Islamic understanding of the nation of Ishmael? I myself am a little hesitant to get super into this kind of like biblical genealogy or like biblical race genealogy that tends to play out where people are like, oh, 
the Arabs are the children of Ishmael. And so they must be in blah, 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 blah. But in terms of like nourishment and nurturing, Ishmael and Hagar herself are kind of credited with like growing the city of Mecca itself, which of course is a holy place in Islam. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Where God settled her was basically where the Kaaba is today. Like we mentioned earlier, yeah, they were placed there to specifically to rebuild the house of God, the Kaaba, and to establish the proper method of prayer. But yeah, if it weren't for if it weren't for Hagar and Ishmael, Mecca would not be the city that it is today. It wouldn't be this important trade hub where Muhammad, peace be upon him, would later come to receive the revelation and and to, you know, change the world as we know it. So I'm curious. So it, certainly spiritual parents, it sounds like, of the faith, right? And the, the builders of Mecca, that's incredible. I'm curious, how does Abraham play in? How is Abraham seen? Because certainly in this text, he doesn't come across as the greatest dad. Yes. So Abraham plays a very strange role in the Islamic tradition, at least to me, it seems strange. So like he he goes out, he leaves them in the desert. And then according to non-Quranic Islamic tradition, he visits several times. Well, actually in the Quran, it does say that uh, Ibrahim and Ishmael establish prayer and raise up the house of God. So they were together in the Quran several times. But even outside of the Quran, it's noted that he made the journey to Mecca um, or what would become Mecca a couple times. And he kind of like misses Ishmael. He visits, but he runs into Ishmael's wife. And the first time he like asks her, he basically like interrogates her. He grills her the way that a parent, you know, grills a, a spouse or a potential spouse. And then before he leaves, he tells her, oh yeah, tell Ishmael to change his threshold and then leaves. Like he just mysteriously dips. And then Ishmael comes back and she re- his wife relays the message to him and he divorces her because apparently that change your threshold was code for your wife is not pious enough. And then again, Ibrahim comes back and only finds Ishmael's new wife and does the same thing, except he leaves a message that says, keep your threshold. So it's like he's approving of this new marriage. He blesses the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It does make sense that he would visit. I really, like, if I read this text, one of the things is how heartbroken Abraham is about this whole thing. Like, it, even though he is the one who sends them out, um, you know, as a parent who's sent my kids out to live on their own, like, the, you're so excited that they're doing their own thing, even if they're establishing their lives. It's still really sad and you miss them. And I come up with excuses to go visit my kids. You know, my daughter has new kittens and I go visit the grand cats and I um, <laughs> I take my, my dog who my son misses and I go by and, and visit, right? Like, as a parent, it's hard and, and Ishmael's around 17, right? When he goes into the desert. In the Islamic tradition, he's a baby. He's an infant. So is the boy who's weaned, the boy grew and stopped nursing. I always thought that was Isaac in verse 8. Is that Ishmael? And I, you know what? Sometimes we make this mistake of trying to make the story make sense chronologically and like factually like it's a historical document when in reality the story is that Ishmael was young. It does make a lot of sense to me that Abraham would want to go see his son and then he missed him and then he would take that pilgrimage to travel and try to help him establish prayer like that makes a lot of sense especially because the promise was given to Abraham that his sons would be the the fathers of nations and all of that and and so I imagine Abraham feels some responsibility yeah I think it does make sense so in the Islamic tradition it's unknown which son Abraham was told to sacrifice So in, I believe in the Christian tradition, it's Isaac, right? You know, whether it's one or the other, he's, he's been told to sacrifice one, haha, just kidding. Also send your other child out into the desert. So like, you know, whether Abraham is like a really crappy dad or not, this is like a hugely traumatic thing. I think it does make sense that he would want to go back. And it's interesting that I, I don't know if 
God, in, if in the Islamic tradition, God tells Abraham and Ishmael both directly to rebuild the Kaaba, but, you know, to like share that honor with the child that was basically discarded, even though that's not the tradition. I'm sure that's how it felt. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I think is most interesting about this story and that we talked about last time on this episode is um, is the fact that there is this deeply yonic image, right, of of <clears throat> a well being made in a desert that is to symbolize the fertility of Hagar, that Hagar is bringing this new life into, into this thing, and that God is making a life for Ishmael in the middle of the desert. And the fact that that is, um, you know, that that's symbolized by this well coming in here. Now, there is, there's a purification process in Islam that celebrates womanhood as well, that is thought about to be related to this in the Islamic tradition, Zamzam well. I'm probably mispronouncing that, so please forgive me. But <laughs> Noel, would you tell us a little bit more about that ritual and and how it is seen as coming from Hagar? Okay. I think I think maybe you're uh, aggregating two different things. There's so there's wudu, which is the ritual purity that you have to do before prayer. And there is the Zamzam well. I think it's perfectly reasonable to connect them because if Ishmael was told to establish prayer, you know, near the Zamzam well, it would make sense to do wudu in that location. But the yes, so the ritual in in the Hajj is that you recreate Hagar's journey. She in searching for water for her infant child, she runs back and forth between two hills, and the hills are known as Safa and Marwa. And when you go on Hajj, one of the things that you do is you you walk back and forth. Now, of course, today there's this big underground air-conditioned walkway <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. But yes, so you you recreate this journey. And then some people actually in that aspect of the Hajj will go to the Zemzem well. They might drink from it or take water back home in memory of Hagar. And yes, it is a, a celebration or viewed by some, you know, we have patriarchy in Islam too, of course, but it is viewed by some as a celebration of motherhood. So I don't think that many people would like explicitly understand the Zemzem well as yonic imagery, but certainly a celebration of Hagar's motherhood and her nurturing and the nurturing of God. Well, and it's interesting because that ritual watching is like in, in the Christian tradition really only carried on when the priest is, uh, and really only in liturgical traditions that have the sacrament, is only carried on because the priest washes their hands before they uh, sanctify the Eucharist. I use hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's not part of the liturgy, but because of COVID and all of that, but even before that, because yeah. <laughs> you're greeting people before church, but before you touch the bread that people are about to eat. So it's become a part of our ritual. So we have hand sanitizer by the it's fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> it, yeah, I think it's technically supposed to be flowing water, but that, that's fine. <laughs> I like the hand sanitizer as well. No, we don't. Yeah, we don't use living water to, but but that is a part of the the Catholic Eucharist. Yeah, I have to say that um, one of my most meaningful experiences uh, as as a young person exploring faith was that um, the little area that I grew up in was very very conservative, um, as in like the uh, Islamic center had been burned down and people knew who had burned it down and didn't turn him in, um, kind of situation. That doesn't sound like conservative. That sounds like toxic, fascist, violent. Like what they're trying to conserve is like Jim Crow hatred, yeah. not... Have I mentioned that I was raised in a fundamentalist cult? Um, <laughs> the Islamic Center had been burned down. We knew, Everybody knew who it was. I didn't know who it was. But the people in my church, again, fundamentalist cult, um, were praying that the new mosque was not able to be built. And um, they prayed against this mosque all the time and oh protested gosh. it and all these sort of things. So the mosque was very wisely made out of brick. And after I was kicked out of that fundamentalist cult, I went and prayed with them um, because I thought, if that place hates you, you must be doing something right. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I was able to participate in the practice of wudu and cleanse myself and then go in and pray. And 
I didn't understand what they were praying, of course, but I was praying my own words in a language that I understood. And it was just a wonderful experience. And from there, I was able to go on and pray with many other uh, Muslim siblings who welcomed me into their space and allowed me to be in that space because they would make space for me even when the, the church that I was raised in wouldn't make space for them. Now, divine justice happened because a fire swept through there, completely burnt down the church. You know what's still standing? The mosque. So... <laughs> <laughs> I just it's it's shocking to me that a church would pray against people. Yeah. Like like we I occasionally I hear prayers that people change their minds or whatever. Yeah. Um but and and we try to push back against that because it's like you praying to like that that's really a boundary violation. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> you yeah. know. Um you you can pray that they experience the love of God, you can pray right that God transform them in light of God's light or whatever, but to pray against someone else's faith that that to me is uh, that's shocking. Yeah. When your religion is just about justifying your own politics, it doesn't matter what your religion actually teaches, right? Um, it doesn't matter that you're supposed to have space for other people or love your neighbor. It only matters that your particular brand of Republican fascist politics are uh, are upheld and that outsiders are left on the outside. Um, I did want to share just like a little anecdote about Islamic prayer. And I think that I'm going to proselytize a little bit, but I think that folks should try it. If you have Muslim friends, you should ask them to show you how to do it. Give it a shot. Even if you don't think you want to convert for me as a young trans person, or like, especially for trans folks, we're constantly alienated from our own body by dysphoria and maybe dysmorphia too. The act of wudu and then Salah is so in your own body. I think it can be really healing for folks. And it doesn't have to be like Islamic prayer. It could be something else that helps you like ground yourself where you are. But for me, it was super healing. And I just wanted to share that. Is is it a closed practice? Like I've experienced hospitality from mm. folks who've welcomed me into to prayer services before. But is it something... In other words, is it unwise for people to try it on their own? Is it better to go to a mosque or find a friend who can introduce you and, and kind of be your guide along the process? I think it probably is best to find someone who can kind of like help you out in that way. It's definitely like not practice. And it's also important to say that like in the eyes of most Muslims, like you aren't a Muslim until you say the Shahada. So even like doing the prayer doesn't do the thing but yeah it's it's not a closed practice by any means and and i have i've known a lot of people who converted and who didn't convert that started off just by like following a youtube video thanks for sharing them yeah that's wonderful no thank you so much for being a part of this podcast uh, you are always welcome back whenever you want to um, <laughs> we're going to keep talking about uh, some other some other facets of this story but thank you so much for being a part of this conversation and uh, tying in our siblings of the faith who we have a lot to learn from and who we can join in solidarity with to build the world that we need to see so thank you so much of course thank you so much for having me i just wanted to add to noel's beautiful point that they were making the the fact that like i think that religion part of the beauty that i find in islam is that it engages all of your senses it's also what engages me in orthodox worship in in the christian tradition and part of the reason that i'm an episcopalian now is it engages all of my senses it engages my intellectual faculty it engages my my body as i'm standing up as i'm sitting down as i'm rocking back and forth because uh, i can't help but my body keeps davening even though i'm not practicing judaism um <laughs> you know it, the smells and the bells keep me there it's bringing all of myself to worship there. And it has been one of the wonderful things about sharing space with Muslim siblings that, that prayer is a full experience. And I highly recommend everyone go and pray with our Muslim siblings, especially right now, especially as we're about to head into yet another election with a fascist whose whole thing is villainizing people because of the way that they pray and the way that they worship differently than we do. 
So that's my challenge to you. Go and pray with a Muslim sibling and build some comradeship there. <laughs> um, yeah, in my experience, if you call a mosque or an Islamic center, uh, they're used to handling diverse crowds yeah. because there are Islam is such a, a diverse religion with people from all over yeah. the world and people practice differently. Um, and they're used to having curious folks if you call ahead and just say, hey, I'm interested yeah. in learning. Even if you don't know someone um, who practices that faith to call and say, do you have any classes for people who are interested? Like I'm, and, and let them know you're genuinely interested and not trying to come like proselytize yep. your own faith and, and whatever you do, don't go and proselytize, <laughs> uh, you know, go with an open heart to learn. Yep. You know, I've always received extraordinary hospitality and, um, I've learned a lot and, and just been really blessed by, by those interactions. So yeah, give it a shot. But also recognize that they've been hurt. If you are a Christian, recognize that there there can be a lot of trauma there, and so tread lightly. If you are going to proselytize, proselytize for something useful like socialism. God already has them. Don't worry about. <laughs> no, don't, 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 no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Go in with a learner's heart and with humility. Yeah, also that I guess. But <laughs> speaking of socialism, I. One of the funniest parts of this story is that Abimelech is, again, generic king, right? Generic Philistine king. And Phicol, again, generic commander of his forces, is in this in this area, he just doesn't understand that he can do anything wrong. Like, he's so wealthy that he's like, oh, I did that thing? Oh, my servants covered up your well and kept you from living your best life? Oh, what? What could have happened? I'm sorry. I just have so many things going on right now that I didn't even notice that that happened. It, this, I saw a politician on television do this exact thing with the Restrict Act. <laughs> and they were interviewed on, it was a Republican interviewed on Fox News. And Fox News was saying, well, this is a freedom of speech thing, um, which was wild. And the... This was a, a bill that was uh, intended to do some overreach in terms of um, access to people's data. Uh, and it was the TikTok ban bill um, for those who remember that. But they were like, so did you know that this restricts freedom of speech? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I haven't actually read the bill. <laughs> and the interviewer was like, you're a sponsor on it. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, I guess I should look into that. <laughs> you know, like exactly what you're saying. Oh, I guess I've been busy. I haven't paid attention to this landmark legislation that would have a huge impact, not only on my constituents, but on all Americans. Mm, yeah. Well, and it's like, Yikes. yeah. And when you have so much power concentrated in the hands of so few people, how can they pay attention to all of these things that are going on? Right. First off, I don't think that there's any uh, oil executive that doesn't know exactly what they're doing to the planet. <laughs> but, you know, like when you're so wealthy that you don't even realize that you're that you are causing the oppression of others, right? Our nation here in the United States depends on the oppression of other countries and we get to be willfully ignorant of those things, right? We live segregated lives. Yeah. Absolutely. I, that's what I've learned um, talking to elderly folks in the congregation who grew up not really aware of the degree of racism that mm. was going on in the country. It's like, how could you not know? Yeah. Well, they lived in all white communities. Yeah. Right. They, they had no interactions and, and they understand how problematic that was now. But, but when they were kids growing up, they were like, well, I have no idea. That's that will, willful ignorance. We don't understand the plight of somebody who's mining the materials for our smartphones because we're not in relationship with them. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is why solidarity is so important, right? We cannot afford to be the abomelex of the world to say, like, your life and well-being doesn't matter enough for me to even notice what's going on in your circumstance. A lot of times when people are talking about, let's build a uh, Scandinavian-type democracy, right? What they're looking for there is a rich nation using its riches to supplement socialism, right? But that's still a socialism that is dependent upon the imperialism of uh, the and the subjugation of other nations, right? We're not just looking for all of us to be free, because if it's just us free, we're still being the Abimelechs to so many other nations. 
And at this point, we don't have an excuse. So, you know, I said, you know, call up the Islamic Center. Well, if you live in in a region where you don't have a lot of access to talking to people from Southeast Asia or from Central Africa, you can go on Tumblr or TikTok or Instagram. I don't actually know if Instagram's particularly international, but (laughs) like on TikTok, I can go live and watch somebody in Kenya do a tour of their village and talk to me about Mm. what's going on. You can read stuff on the internet. It's all free to you. You can travel the world and learn about people's experience from people who are living there. We don't have an excuse to be ignorant about what's going on in the world anymore. You, you You have first firsthand sources, or you don't even have to just listen to what the news is telling you. You can watch somebody on the ground in Calcutta explaining what's going on. Uh, and, and that's a huge privilege that we have now. And our struggle to dismantle capitalism in the United States will benefit them, right? Or your struggle to dismantle ca- capitalism wherever you are will benefit those other people, right? But we can't give up on them to win our battle, right? We have to stand in solidarity with them to change the world. And recognize that it hurts us too. Yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and it's not an us versus them. Like, I'm, I'm tired of the... The whole political <laughs> theater is ridiculous. I'm tired of hearing about the Trump indictment. It will not change his thing, really. <laughs> On the ground yeah. level, when it comes to who's hungry and who's not, it's not about Republican versus Democrat, Libertarian. Like It's the super rich versus everybody else. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and, and it is the super rich that convince us there are these divisions among us, right? That we get to be sitting up here against them. It's this deception, right, that they've put over us. What is the greatest motivating factor of these people who are incredibly racist, right? So racist that they are chanting, build the wall. They have been convinced for a generation that the well-being of immigrants comes at the cost of their well-being, right? When in reality, that's not the case. And here in this story, we have Abraham who is being treated well and says, hey, you have to treat me well, and I have to treat you well, because I'm an immigrant here, right? You have a responsibility to take care of me. While Abraham is kicking out the immigrant in his family. That's quite the contrast, isn't it? But I think we're meant to see that. I mean, if this is a story that's being told generation after generation, in a culture that values hospitality as one of its core values, I think it's good to recognize, wow, Abraham is not practicing the hospitality that he showed to other people. What's repeated over and over and over again in in scripture, remember you were once slaves in Egypt, right? Abraham, remember you were an immigrant. Uh, And that's part of what we say in the United States to people. Remember that your grandpa was an immigrant and you're building things to drown babies in the Rio Grande. Like what in the world is going on? We shouldn't say it's a super rich versus the rest of us. I think I think it's the the integrity of humanity. Like we're all on the same team. I don't think that billionaires are, are necessarily happy. And I don't think that being ignorant might feel comfortable, but you're not connected to your brothers and sisters. And if we believe as Christians that in the living body of Christ and that God inhabits all human beings, the only way that you get to know God is by getting to know other human beings. So they're cut off from God and they're cut off from their neighbors. And that's, uh, for a lot of people, the definition of hell. Absolutely. Because it isn't the super rich, right? It is the system of wealth itself, right? It is the system and the powers of sin and death that we are opposed to. We are opposed to the principalities of this world, like capitalism, like sexism, like homophobia, all of those things. And here in this story, we have the story of two people, uh, Abraham in terms of immigration and Sarah in terms of her empowerment as a woman, who are able to use their privilege in their society to take away from others what they have just been given. And I think that as our generation, uh, as my generation in particular ages, we're going to see some of our elders pass away and we're going to run into an inheritance, right? Those, that boomer wealth has to go somewhere and, and we're going to get it. It's not going to be fast enough for, us, for any of us to have a home before we're 40, but um, <laughs> we are going to get some of that wealth, right? And the easiest way, the way that our society is set up, is that we then take that and we are comfortable enough that we no longer resist the system and the way that it is set up. They are going to buy us off 
They're going to attempt to buy us off to perpetuate capitalism. It's what happened in the New Deal. The New Deal was not this great socialist revolution. It was capitalism desperately holding on to try to perpetuate itself so that in 40 years, it could become just as nasty as it had been before. So the question is, what do we do with this, right? We have this example of power corrupting Abraham. You see that throughout scripture. We've talked in the past about David, the sweet little shepherd boy who, once he becomes part of this system of power, is super corrupted. And so how can we resist that as human beings who will get power in our lifetime, right? Like, I feel like, yeah, as someone who's looking to buy my first house after 40, <laughs> right? Uh, is that, is it going to change me? Um, does having a, a full-time job shift the way I am in the world? Do we lose some of that hunger when we lose our hunger? How do we remain connected to the people who, and, and how do we stay in solidarity with the people? Yeah. And maybe part of it is remembering that the system hurts us no matter where we are in it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is, that I think is the answer. I think the answer is love, right? And that's a cop-out pastor answer, but <laughs> but I think it really is love. It is solidarity. It is recognizing that all of our humanity is shrunk if any of our humanity is shrunk. And it comes back to this Isaac, whose name is Laughter. I absolutely love laughter, and I love Christian theology in part because Christian theology is this process of grand reversals, right? We have this tradition where the Monday after Easter Sunday is called Easter Monday. It's called Laughter Monday, right? It's a day when you get together and you tell jokes to each other because a joke is what? It is the setting up of an expectation and the reversal of that expectation. Isaac is a grand joke. No one expects an old person to have a kid, and then bam, God makes them have a kid. That causes laughter. Everyone expects this prophet to die and to be dead, and that to be the end of him. And what happens? God brings him back to life and uses that as the liberation of all people, right? People expect this system to work this way, but if we cling on to love instead, we're able to reverse all of it. We're able to say, no, the last shall be first. And even though I've gotten a little bit more in my life, instead of using that just for my own ends, I'm going to share that with the people around me. I'm going to share that with the people who love me. I'm going to share that with the people who give me full life instead of isolating myself off into the little bit of life that I get a hold of. It feels like resurrection, Micah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and resurrection is is not just something that gets to happen after we die, right? Hopefully, heaven is something that we're doing now. That we're reclaiming after Rome stole the message and turned it into the message of empire. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because what did Rome do? Rome took this thing that we were trying to have here and said, that happens after you die, right? That happens, so so you can work really hard for us now, and then if you do well enough, if you're a good enough imperial slave, then you'll end up there. And if you pay us money, you can get out of purgatory faster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can get out of the little bit of hell. We're going to put you in anyway, um, a little bit faster. <laughs> There's a super Protestant bias to this podcast now. I just want to point out, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it, I, like Jesus was anti-empire, yeah. was anti-Rome, and then Rome said, "Aha! The way we destroy mm -hmm. this is we make Christianity ours." Yep. Yeah. Right, and and so I feel like we have something to learn from that, from not letting our faith be co-opted by Abimelech and <laughs> you know the, the folks with with power to say no, it's we will not the gospel message or the message of love will not be owned by a corporation or a king. It belongs to all of us. Yeah, absolutely, and we get to build it together. And I think that is the most beautiful part of all of this is, is that we're not on the we're not in on this alone, right? And the community that we are bu building online, the community that has already existed, this is what we need to be able to make the change. And build that community in your local area. Go and find the groups who are doing this, so that we can start making heaven here now, um, to make all of life better for all of us. So, Sarah, do you have any closing thoughts? If that community doesn't exist, if you have one friend, you can start it, right? Uh, Micah and I were part of this 
progressive movement on TikTok that started when we all went into the pandemic. And we started with, you know, 12 or 15 of us, and we've built a movement of millions. And I'm not saying that's what you have to do, but even if there are three people, right, and you have an impact on one life, and that person impacts, like, it's all exponential, the impact. And every little bit counts. And all you have to do is your part, right? You don't have to solve every single problem, but if you do your part and somebody else does their part, you you really can make a big difference. From the Sodom Gomorrah story, we keep I keep repeating ten is enough. Here in this story, two is enough. That Hagar and Ishmael lean on each other, and the third person of their group is God. <laughs> and if you can only find one other comrade, then the third person in your group is God, who's going to be there beside you to make sure that you are able to grow well, that you're able to have this well in the midst of a desert, that you are able to run back and forth between the mountains to find the water you need to to drink and to, to give each other water in the midst of your thirst. God will be there with you. And that is how we bring about the change we want to see in the world. Pastor Sarah and Noel, thank you all so much for being a part of this podcast. It was, once again, a wonderful conversation. We so appreciate having you um, each and every time, and it's just wonderful. <laughs> and thank you, dear listener, for jumping on and being a part of this community, growing this community, sharing it with so many people that that I've never shared it with, and it's getting such a, <laughs> such a wider audience uh, than I thought was going to get it. I thought it was just going to be me and Sarah listening to it, basically, um, but... <laughs> But y'all have grown it into something that I did not foresee happening. So thank you, thank you. Now, Pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things are mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go, my friends, and know that even in the midst of the desert, God heard the boy's cries, and God remained with the boy, and they grew up, they lived in the desert and established a nation living in the world that God wants us to build. Shalom. Shalom.